the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. How does Mirror Trading International tie in with Teaser's founder, the late Lolly Jackson, and jailed gangster Radovan Kretcher? The tie-in is author Sean Newman, one-time colleague of Lolly Jackson, who many suspect was killed by Radovan Kretcher. The Kretcher was charged with other murders, but not this one. Sean is currently neck deep researching another book on Mirror Trading International or MTI, which was rated by Chain Analysis as the world's largest crypto scam in 2020. Conceived and executed right here in South Africa, MTI spread across the world with more than 200,000 members sending in more than 29,000 Bitcoin to MTI, where they were promised returns of up to 10% a month using computerized bots for trading. The Financial Services Conduct Authority investigated and found no evidence of any successful trading in MTI. Just a brief recap, MTI was placed in liquidation in December 2020 when it stopped processing requests from members for withdrawals. CEO Johan Steinberg disappeared just before then and was arrested there in Brazil earlier this year, actually late last year, and to the best of our knowledge, remains in custody in Brazil. You have all the ingredients of a rip-roaring thriller right here. No need to go looking for it on Netflix. Welcome, Sean. It's good to have you on the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. Perhaps we can start just by explaining who you are. You worked with Lolly Jackson. You then co-authored a book on his life. And I guess you interacted with some interesting people along the way. Just tell us who you are. Hi, Kieran, and thank you for having me. Yes, I suppose you can say that there have been a little bit of... um some interesting life moments along the way to this point in my existence. Um, So yes, I actually have co-authored two books about interesting characters, uh, Lolly Jackson, His Life and Murder, and then The Spate of Murders that Surrounded, um, his entire world just after his death and the months that followed, and I suppose years, as well as a biographical take on Glenn Agliotti, which for those that don't know, was a very close confidant of the late mining magnate, Brett Kibble and was accused of orchestrating his murder. So both of these individuals' lives had some connection or other to that of what would be considered the underworld of South Africa, which makes their stories pretty interesting to begin with. Unwittingly, I suppose my life had crossed paths with many of uh, the most famous names in this sphere, and it's not lost on me, I think, how, how charmed I am to have come so close to this world of murder and mayhem, and yet I'm still here to tell the tale. I suppose that that is where the great stories in life are born. And in Lolly and Glenn, there were no shortage of those. They were both larger in life characters. Glenn still is. And while not everyone's cup of tea, I can certainly say a lot of fun to be around. Lolly was uh, pretty much like a child at heart. And we're not being weighed down by the ever-looming threat of uh, SARS, which for anyone listening's information was kind of a banned term inside our offices, unless you wanted him in a terrible mood and probably to be fired on any given day. You were, you were actually working with Lolly Jackson for quite some years. What position did you have there in, in teasers? So a lot of people kind of mischaracterized me as being his right hand. That, that role was not mine. Lolly almost shielded me from a lot of, a lot of what went on. Um, and I think sometimes it does a disservice to those that served him a lot longer than I did. But I was hired as his marketing manager and his spokesperson. And we kind of had this agreement that the less he told me, the easier it was for me to deal with the media. And through that, we, we developed quite a close bond. And he, he started confiding in me about other parts of his life and, and so forth. 
Yeah, it, it was an interesting world. And if you take away, you know, what we know today and what happened and the, the individuals that were surrounded and even the industry, from a business point of view and a marketing point of view, the man was just pure gold to be around to see how he operated. He did things on a different level and never shied away from tackling issues. Right. And you also got to know, I mean, some of the, the characters I mentioned in the, the introduction, well, Radovan Kretsch, you had quite a bit of interaction with him. What, what was your impression of him? Well, you know, the first time I'll never forget, I met Radovan. He, he walked into the office um, and he greeted everyone. And, and this was something about him that not many people realize. His manners were, were absolutely just impeccable. And he would greet you. He would shake your hand. He would look you in the eye. He would stand if you came to the table. If a woman left a table, he would stand. So the first time I met him, he came in, he introduced himself, and he was the one who approached, which was kind of strange having been in the office for a couple of weeks. And everyone else used to walk in and had this air of importance around them. But probably one of the most powerful individuals to walk into the office had the foresight and manners to treat the staff with, with respect. Anyway, he went into the office with Lolly, and the first indication I knew that something was a bit amiss was for the first time he closed his office doors. They had these huge imposing double doors, and they were never closed. If you were screaming at somebody, if you were having a personal chat with him, those doors remained open. If they closed, it was definitely something that was, was just untoward. So they go inside, and, and I'll never forget, the accountant looked up from his computer and, and whispered to me, Google Radovan Kretscher, Czech Republic. And I Googled it, and I think I almost fell off my chair, realizing who was sitting on the other side of the door just behind my desk. Other than that, I always found him to be incredibly well-mannered, amiable, um, respectful. Him and I did have one run-in along the way. And in hindsight, I probably diced with, um, with a bit of danger that day, not realizing he had sent his, his accountant, Ivan Savov, who ultimately ended up being implicated in the murder of a German super car converter, Uwe Gembala, in South Africa. And it was his house, known as the House of Horrors in Edenville, that Gembala was held and killed. He came to the office and decided to demand in, I think it was either just the January of 2011. So Lolly had been dead a couple of months. And he demanded that the loans, in adverted commas, be repaid immediately. Now, these loans were nothing but paper. We all knew it in the office. Ultimately, anywhere you looked about it, it was classic kite flying to obscure foreign currency coming into the business accounts via Radovan's mother. And it had become a bit of a bone of contention the whole way through the estate to that point. So him and I ended up having words because there was a threat that was thrown out and I kicked him out the office. And then I found Radovan and inadvertently had a go at him. The next day, to his credit, he did call me back and apologize for Savov's conduct. But in hindsight, it probably wasn't my smartest move. Okay. Uh, for those who haven't been reading the news of late, uh, Radovan Kretscher, I think he currently sits in Sun City Prison here in Joburg, and he has been convicted of uh, some murders. But you, you did have a, you talked about a run-in with him. I think when Lolly Jackson was was killed, there there was an expectation on his part that he would take over teasers or maybe just explain. We're getting to the crypto part now, but I just want to wrap this up. 
So this was the ideology is that these loans then formulated into a plan. And it was a plan orchestrated by Radovan and Cyril Beaker, the late Cyril Beaker. Now, another name that gets thrown out that a lot of people have heard or may not know who he is, he was alleged to be the head of the Cape Town underworld. And all the chaos we see down there at the moment was avoided while he was alive because he kept an ironclad grip on it. And he was a security boss and pretty feared. And from my end, they had hatched this plan and I'd been called to a meeting in the December that basically I was meant to put a memorandum of understanding together. The issue was, was that memorandum was never effectively going to be honored. It was just time buying exercise, so to speak. Ultimately, though, by the February, he had gotten a bit irritated by it. And I was summoned to a meeting at his house in Clough Road of Bedford View. Now, anyone that's driven down Clough, 54A is a very imposing house. It's on the hill itself. It's like Bali-esque. It's three, four stories. It's, it's big. I arrive. I get there. I go up the, the stairs. Nobody, I never saw anyone use the elevator inside the house despite it being there right to the top floor where the kitchen is, and it has these magnificent views when the, when the shutters are open overlooking Bedford View and Johannesburg. And there's Radovan sitting, and Cyril Beaker is next to him. And that's when my heart skipped a beat, because now I had to come and tell them it's a bad plan, and these, these are the reasons why it's not going to work. Ultimately, while at the time it was a bit of a stall for time and to, to get this pressure off of us, it would prove prophetic the story that I told. So I explained to them that to take over the business of teasers, you'd be unnecessarily lumbering yourself with the liability of SARS. And that ultimately SARS was going to take this business, was going to put it into, into a, a process. And would they want to be the ones who were ultimately sitting with that kind of pressure on their shoulders? And Radovan completely agreed with me. He nodded, he, he agreed. Cyril, however, was sitting to my right, and it was the most unnerving experience of my life because he, he had this penetrating stare. He didn't break it. He didn't flinch. He just kept his eyes on you. And when you looked at him, they were staring straight into your eyes, and it felt like he was inside my brain looking for, for the problem in the story. He never said a word from the moment I walked in, despite having met him on previous occasions, to the moment I walked out. And it was in that moment, walking out of the house, that I realized that potentially I was getting myself into a zone that even I couldn't talk myself out of. Ultimately, that was where the end of my tenure at, at Teasers began, was that very meeting. And then, as, as history goes, a couple of months later, the next year in the Easter, Beaker would be gunned down himself while being driven by his Serbian bodyguard, who I also would later learn that I had spent a lot of time with unwittingly as well. Wow. Okay. So you, you interacted with some, uh, some truly interesting and dangerous people. Uh, and that kind of pivots now towards Mirror Trading International, which is the latest project that you're busy with. You're doing research on a book and you've been doing this for quite a while. You've gone into a lot of detail. Maybe peel back the curtain for a minute and tell us some of the more surprising things that you've learned about mirror trading. Uh, and for people who haven't been following it, just describe what it was. So I think the easiest way to begin is maybe to, to give some background as to how I got involved in this. 
because it wasn't something that I was looking to do. You know, I had written two books. I'd gotten it out of my system. The bucket list was done. I had a friend approach me and he said to me that he needed to see me. And I have a lot of respect for this individual. In fact, I would put him on a mentor level. And the fact that he was saying he needed to see me urgently about something and, it, and he needed a favor, well, there was no question about it. So we had lost contact for a while and, and this was, a, you know, it was a great opportunity to catch up. We met, we sat down and instantaneously he asked me, have you heard of Mirror Trading International? And I said to him, I had, I'd seen, you know, the carte blanche insert, followed it a bit in the media, but, you know, you lose interest over it because there's no real follow through on what's going on. It's a hype and then it dies down and that's, with most stories. And he explained to me that he had invested a certain sum of Bitcoin. And when I say a certain sum, it wasn't a 0.5, it was more than a Bitcoin. It struck me instantaneously because he is not an individual who is easily taken on something and is, is very sharp in this particular world. Not crypto itself, but you know, of alleged scams and, and playing, playing the game and salesmanship and all those kind of things and fast talking. So I said to him, well, you know, it wasn't really something I was looking at. He said, well, all I'm asking you is a favor and you owe me a couple. So he pulled the card is give it 30 days. Start with a Zoom call that was done on the day that it was basically found out that the, the founder had disappeared and then take it from there and we'll just talk over the next 30 days and see where it goes. Well, that was uh, January last year, February last year, if I'm not mistaken, around there. And I'm still stuck here, um, much, to, much to, I think, his delight. Um, but as you start to go into this, you start with a holistic view. And if you go in with a preconceived idea of everything that's been written, you're going to end up with a story that is basically, it's going to run in, in absolute copy and paste fashion to everything that the journalists had done up to this point, including yourself. And it was amazing work. And it set me on a very strong grounding as to what the thoughts were out there. But from the very instant, it was my feeling that this had to be more. If, if there was time available, there had to be a deeper dig. What I ended up coming across along the way, I don't think a lot of the, the questions and a lot of the answers and a lot of more questions that spawned from those answers were expected because this was meant to be a copy. It, it was meant to be an open and shut case. Let's call it an anatomy of a scam. It was meant to be incredibly easy to, to look at. But what I did find is that along the way, parties that were seemingly meant to be, call it a boulder in the road that would block me, actually turned into pebbles and stepped aside and let me in. Kieran, you'll know yourself. If you're doing the background of a story, you, you know that you've got to cross your T's and dot your I's. It's just kicking the, the pebble out the road, so to speak, and move on to the juicy stuff. A lot of those pebbles were being kicked and just turning straight into boulders and locking themselves in place and doing everything to obscure what was behind the story. And this is the thing. Then we have this whole scenario where, just to jump completely forward, you've got this mysterious founder, Johann Steinberg, and he's disappeared. And then you'll understand this. We all basically find out in January that he was arrested in the December prior. And it's massive news. 
Have you heard anything about him? Have you had an update since that run of stories? I haven't, and I've struggled to get any further information on it. These are the kind of issues that present themselves in MTR. On top of that, you've got this little matter of it going into liquidation. And when I say little, I think we need to read into the sarcasm of that. Because while the story itself is fairly easy to unravel to that point, I think it becomes a lot more complicated the moment you move into the realm of the liquidation. Because on top of that, crypto funds to the tune of 1,281 Bitcoin are recovered and converted to fiat. That to me becomes the single biggest complication in the story is the recovery of those coins and how they got to be in a position to be recovered to begin with. That is where I'm kind of like, and I know it's cryptic, but if you want to ask specifics, I'm more than happy to go into the story about those coins. So FS Choice was the, the broker based out of Belize where MTI purportedly executed its trading. Now, it supplied correspondence to the FSCA, the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, claiming mirror trading did engage in trading, but that that trading resulted in a substantial loss of the capital invested. Also, that uh, these accounts, these statements of accounts were being, they were actually demo accounts. They weren't, it wasn't real money. So there's some confusion here. Was there real trading? Were these demo accounts? Were you able to ferret out anything about this company and get to the bottom of what actually happened there? Well, yes, Kieran, it, it, it's, it's a very interesting company and its incorporation itself. So ultimately last year, there was the release of the Pandora Papers, which much like the Panama Papers was set to expose all the shady dealings and underhandedness, as well as the secrecy behind how these international trusts work. I had at one point managed to, to look at, MT, at, at FX Choices registered address. It's in Belize, as you stated, but it shared an address with, a, with another company. And when the Pandora Papers came out, this company was named as one of the, the big secrecy brokers around the world. So it's a company called CSS Trust Limited. So I managed to have a look into the Pandora Papers, and it turns out that FX Choice moved its operations to CSS Trust and moved its telephone line. Ergo, it is nothing but a desk in Belize. So it's very much like these operations that you see where it is based around the world or on a computer, and they have a telephone number in order to keep the jurisdictional licensing that they choose. Belize itself is very interesting because it's not overly difficult to get licensing over there if you've got a bit of money. And what I found very interesting is, is that Belize doesn't require these brokerages to separate their finances from that of the investors. So it, it's all just a mishmash inside of there. In finding all of that out, it also came to light that FX Choice is owned by Singular, and I would assume that you can take this any which way you want in light of what's going on around the world in a current war that's raging, raging, but a singular Russian individual. And this gentleman seemingly controlled the reins of, of FX Choice. My issue with the FX Choice is, in order for us to believe their side of the story, we need to disprove Steinberg's side of the story. Steinberg is not available for that to happen. So the only way that you can look at the versions is to look at their version because you can't test his. Now, as for the demo accounts, 
that seems to have been the crux of everything is that they literally froze these accounts because this 1,280 coins was all that was left. And that was that. They held it in abeyance. And the FSCA knew about those coins as early as the 6th of August, prior to the liquidation taking place on the 28th of December, 2020. So there's quite a big period. I obviously had questions as to, you know, these coins just sitting there. And so I dug a bit into FX Choice further. And what I've basically figured out is, is we've got my biggest question, I suppose, that remains unanswered, and I have posted it in multiple different forms, is there are a couple of statements that, that floated around and have made its way to court papers. But the one that we have to accept is the control statement, is one in the name of Mirror Trading International. It holds an account number at the top, and it's freely available. They provided that themselves, and I have proof of that, to the Financial Services Conduct Authority of South Africa. And it was with that, alongside an affidavit, that a version was put together that ultimately led, and, and, and I will give them the credit for this, to the demise of MTI, or at least to the public form of the company. The issue becomes later on in court papers is there's another set of statements that are presented and the liquidators and their legal team say those ones are false and these are presented by other parties who have an interest. Then we get a third set of statements and suddenly these statements that the liquidators attorneys have provided purportedly from FX Choice have the exact same account number as the one provided to the FSCA. But now it's no longer Mirror Trading International. It's Johan Cornelius Steinberg. And that, to me, casts the entire affair in doubt. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I say it doesn't happen the way that they say it did. But how can you rely on that kind of information if there is that kind of discrepancy? Because either somebody has tampered with them from a South African point of view, or something has gone horribly wrong that we are sitting with two sets of statements allegedly provided by the same party with the same account number, same trading uh, output, different names. If I read this correctly, there's dispute as to whether Steinberg was actually lying, whether this was a Ponzi scheme. In fact, he may have been trading. Um, there may have been laundering of money. Um, or that this was, and there is a court case going on at the moment, which is coming up uh, in, in a week or so, to determine whether this was a Ponzi scheme, in which case all proceeds that have been paid out would have, would be declared unlawful, would have to be paid back. Am I correct in saying that? Absolutely. And I think those court cases themselves um, have kind of taken on a life of their own. You have multiple parties with multiple interests, and it seems like it, it, it's just turned into this absolute you know, when you see those videos of like the tomato fest where people throw tomatoes at each other, this is exactly how it is. It's just a, a mud flinging contest on a consistent basis. So if somebody says one thing, then the papers go in and then there's just this full on attack that seems to happen. And there's a lot of man playing instead of playing the ball from a legal point of view. And ultimately, I think you need to draw it down to what, what is being sought in this. So just to, to make it completely simple, they're looking to nullify the contracts at inception between the members and, and Mirror Trading International. They're seeking to make any disposition an unlawful disposition. So any payout would have been unlawful. And as you rightly said, needs to be returned. They're also trying to avoid 
further legal going forward. And in that, they're asking for the declaratory order that basically says, well, it's been declared a Ponzi and therefore their determination on claims and things cannot be taken to court. And I understand the concept of that. In principle, it becomes a case of you do not want to tie yourself up with a bunch of people every single time you say you owe us 10 rand, taking you to court and sticking it up for the next 10, 15 years. It makes perfect sense. But on the convex side of things, it becomes difficult because you're nullifying people's contracts and you're not being overly specific about the fact that this is only going to affect the net winners. So when you turn around and you say in public, it only affects the net winners, your court papers are not often reflecting this. And, and people forget that it's taken on a life of its own. It started out as, as an, almost an addendum to the original liquidation, which ultimately when it was granted, this, this became the highlight in the center. The issue sometimes, though, is, is that in this, it kind of feels like, and I'm not trying to cast aspersions, it's, it, it, it feels like it genuinely to me that this has become the ultimate excuse, the ultimate excuse for why the process takes so long. Because what everyone tends to just kind of miss in this is because the parties that are facing off against one another are so drastically polar opposite, and there's a lot of hatred and discontent amongst all the groups, including the liquidators to this and the animosity that flows, it sometimes gets forgotten that quite simply put, when the liquidators started this, it is safe to assume that they understood that there was very little risk in bringing a liquidation. The basis of that was, there was 1,280 Bitcoin that on the date of liquidation were worth around 450 million rand. But here comes a problem. You start working with 450 million rand. Nobody expects Bitcoin to almost triple in the time it takes to get this. They get the money, they liquidate it, they realize a far higher amount. So now you've got a solvency issue. And a lot of people say, oh, MTI is insolvent purely based on the fact that the number of investors invested was, was 3 billion rand. And that is the figure that gets bandied around. 3 billion in, 1 billion out, there is this deficit of 2 billion in the middle. Whether or not that is true based on the back office and the reliability of the back office and knowing the people who had access to it before and prior or prior before and prior to liquidation is another is another podcast altogether. But those are very simply put the numbers that we deal with. So now you have an issue of you've got a billion rand, you were accounting for 450 million, but you haven't got a quantum of claim. So to say your claims are 3 billion, it's, it's false. It's patently false. Your potential claims may be 3 billion, but it's not. At the moment, with them only having proven one claim up until last week, where they proved more and we don't have a quantum on those, and that one claim being interesting in its own. But that, that's the, the claim from Steinberg's company. And I think it's for about 6 million Rand. It's a tiny claim in the overall scheme of things. One thing that I feel has been missed with that particular claim is not being spoken about is JNX Online was a company of Steinberg's that was liquidated by the liquidators of Mirror Trading International because it owed Mirror Trading International money. That liquidation was granted. So how did we get 
from it being liquidated because it owed Meritrading International money to it being allowed to put a claim in as a creditor against Meritrading International after it was liquidated. I mean, there's, a, there's quite a few issues that, that are raised here. I mean, let's just look at the broader picture here. That the, the one thing we know for sure, that there's a lot of money involved. And of course, this has been brought up in the various court actions that are going on at the moment is this company was liquidated in and it was not insolvent. Now, in terms of the Companies Act, there's, there's case law on this. You know, what, that could be questioned, that could be challenged. You know, is this liquidated? This is, I guess, why the case is proceeding to determine whether this was a Ponzi scheme and therefore it, the whole thing was an unlawful at inception. But the point I want to get to is the different groupings involved here. There's the liquidators on the one side. Um, you've got Sherry and Clinton Marks. Now, um, Clinton Marks was a 50% shareholder in that. Uh, his wife, Sherry, uh, she was head of marketing. Then there's what you might be described as the winners and the losers. Um, they're also forming various different groupings around this. The winners don't really want to be associated with the losers because they realize that uh, if you're a winner, you might have to pay back. If you're a loser, you're expecting a payout. My sense is that everybody who is in this is trying to hang on to their winnings and those who lost want to get paid out as soon as possible. And the liquidators, well, maybe they've got their own interest. And this has been raised by various lawyers representing uh, various of the groupings that, you know, the liquidators got their own interest in prolonging this thing. What's your sense of this? Listen, uh, I, I think maybe it's time to drop one of one of the, the most enlightening thought processes that, that I've come across in all of this. We did a nice, a nice intro about the underworld and the, the dealings thereof. And if you want an honest opinion, I find the underworld more ethical than liquidation and <laughs> this world. And, and that's an absolute honest opinion. And in fact, somebody, somebody explained it brilliantly to me yesterday when I was asking a, a legal mind for a bit of advice on something uh, for the book. If you thought you had problems while a company was in business, you have no idea the level of your problems once it's in liquidation. And that's not to say that all liquidators are painted with the same brush. It could be the same as painting all lawyers with the same brush, all doctors or politicians. It's not the case. But from what I have seen coming into this, I don't know, maybe my logic is too simple at times, but you have a sum of money. You have people that are putting claims in. And Kieran, it's, it's heartbreaking to see somebody put a claim in for 450 rand. Um, in the greater scheme of things, you know, you almost want to dip into your pocket and just pay it yourself. Because if you think about the effort that has to be taken to go and get proof of that, fill out a claim form, send it off, get it stamped by the police, you know, to, to claim that amount of money, most people would write it off as a stupid mistake, a lotto ticket that went wrong. But there are people out there doing this. I know personal people outside of my friend who have contacted me who have absolute heartbreaking stories. And it's those people that are suffering. So yes, you've got these court cases going on. You've got this fight, but this is an inevitability. We talk very closely of Creon 2.0. You know, it's, it's going to be just like the Creon case that took 10 years and all the money was eaten up. And by the end of it, the only difference is that this is only about 11 times bigger than Creon in terms of what is sitting in the bank account. The money does earn interest. The lawyers will make their money. It is how it is. But it's disheartening at times to see where tactics are overtaking humanity in this. 
because this Ponzi application to a large degree, we, we're 16, 17 months in and all that's literally been done, quite frankly, is to retrieve money that everyone knew was there already and would have been a very cheap fix, a couple of emails and a couple of letters. And in fact, they admit the FSCA helped them retrieve it. So you've got this money sitting there and all that's been achieved thereafter is just searching for more money. But are you sure that you need more money at this juncture? Why not work to prove claims, pay a dividend, and if it is necessary to go after the rest of the money, then do so. But so much time has been spent on these court cases. And I think the longer it goes on, the more your average investor, who should be claiming, because there is money there, a lot of it, and all senses at this point indicate that you anywhere between 60 to 100% payout at the end of this. But they're looking at this process and every time they ask what's happening and the, the liquidators are saying, well, you know, we can't do anything until the Ponzi application is done and we can't do it until the declaratory orders are done, but it's not happening. So, you know, unless people give up their constitutional rights effectively to go and uh, fight something in court and just give us all our way, we can't pay you, which is absolute rubbish at the end of the day. It is rubbish. Well, I, I think the... The, the figures are so there's 1.1 billion sitting in, a, in an account earning interest, uh, presumably at whatever, you know, 8% a year or something like that. There's only one claim we've mentioned already that that's JNX online that has been proved. That's a small amount of about six or six and a half million. Yeah. But there have been other claims of about 350 million put in. Now, that in itself is quite surprising because if there were 290,000 people, according to this, very much unknown. There would be a lot more than that. There would, the, the, the claims would run into billions. So it seems like some people are not putting in claims, potentially fearing that they may have to uh, cough up. You know, they would be called to pay into the account. Precisely. You're spot on. So I liken it to this. I kind of think that there's been a shooting in the foot, so to speak, because the moment you label it something extremely unethical and dodgy, people tend to shy away from it. So the way I see it at this point is, is the moment you label it as a Ponzi or a pyramid, for whatever reasons, you are already cutting yourself down to at maximum about 20% claimants. Because number one, there's, there's first and foremost, and, and it's, it's, it's a great crossover to the lolly story, people don't want SARS to know what they were doing. We forget that Mirror Trading International, or we don't forget, but we just haven't mentioned that there was no KYC on these accounts. So in order to prove yourself, you're going to have to show your bank statements, you're going to have to show your crypto wallet, you're going to have to show your login, your email, everything. A lot of people have made the decision that they don't want their name associated with this. They don't want the shame. We've obviously had, unfortunately, due to a pandemic, a higher than um, average mortality rate around the world in the last two years, which would have obviously affected a portion. We begin to believe that, that the MTR membership was um, immune to that. And then there's the shame aspect. Well, you've called it something, and now I don't want my family to know I'm not going to get involved in this. So I'll write the money off as a bad joke and move on. So you're sitting on a 20%er. Right now, I think the longer this goes on, you're discouraging any chance of getting to that 20% because people just tend to believe that enough time has passed, they, the water's under the bridge, and they, they, they'll just carry on. So I sometimes wonder if the strategy is not exactly 
more devious and underhanded than it should be because the only ones who are going to win in the ultimate end of this, and, and it's something that I've brought up before, because if they go and collect more money, the only people who ultimately any surplus gets paid to are the shareholders. The people who claimed will get their 100% if it's available, and anything over 100% is not split amongst the membership. So why would you effectively want to play debt collector for the shareholders of Mirror Trading International if your claims are only at 350 million rand? Right. So there, there, there is a chance that um, there would, if there was a surplus, the two shareholders being uh, Steinberg and Clinton Marks, that they would get paid out whatever surplus there is that would be split between them. Yes, and that's legal. It's how the, how the liquidation works. That's how the law works. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we are out of time, but a, a quick final question. Is this going to take years to wrap up? I mean, are we only at the start of a long and tedious legal process, or is there a chance that this could be wrapped up quicker? If we continue on the same track that we are at the moment, um, it's not going to end. It's, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to take a long, long time, and there is going to be massive chunks taken out of that, that capital that sits there. Should all the opposing factions decide and the legal teams actually start cooperating, there is a chance it could be could could take less time. But if it continues on this vein, Kieran, I was saying 10 years up until last night, but a very learned individual in in, in this matter, he, he explained to me that he sees it as 15 years. And that's a long, long time. That is a frightening prospect and, and very disheartening, I'm sure, for the MTI members, particularly those who put in quite a lot of money. And we know, you know, there are heartbreaking stories out there of people um, I had emails, a lady moved into a garage in her son's house because uh, all her retirement money went into this. And that's just one of many, many stories like that that are out there. Sean, we're going to leave it there. Um, thanks very much for coming on the podcast and joining us and giving us your updates. And um, we look forward to hearing about the next chapter when it's ready. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. For listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.